Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 172, recorded March 4th, 2020. And I am Brian Aachen. And I'm Michael Kennedy. And this episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. And they've got all sorts of cool stuff we'll hear about later. Who's going first? I always forget. You know, I guess I'm going to jump in on this one because I've got some cool stuff from Hank. Hank, you even me- messed his name up better, worse than I do. Henyek. <laughs> okay, cool. All right. No, Sorry, Henyek. I have to give you a bad time because he gives me a bad time all the time. Yeah, well, it's a, a cool but unusual name, which is probably going to result in some mispronunciation. He's got a, a cool article he tweeted about a little while ago, a week or two ago, and I just thought it was really interesting. And Basically, it's his thoughts on running Python in production. So it's kind of a a look back on some places he heard interesting discussions on people running Python in production, as well as maybe some, got some nice little call outs on things that seem solved, but aren't solved that are interesting to talk about and whatnot. So I just thought I'd maybe talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely relate to this being someone who runs Python in production. So I, in order to keep the two podcasts, the courses and various other things, other services running, there's like eight servers and whatnot. So there's, there's a non-trivial amount of DevOpsy production architecture stuff. It's not anywhere near Facebook, Google, or whatever, but it's way more than, you know, a $5 host running some, like, WordPress thing, right? So it's, it's meaningful, I guess. So anyway, his article, basically the premise is that he's missing a key part of the public Python discourse in that it seems like people really aren't talking about running Python in production, although maybe the exception of Instagram or Spotify, right? Yeah. That's pretty interesting. And he listened to this podcast episode or recommended, or I guess listened to this podcast episode sort of kicked him off down this path of thinking about it. Like there was this podcast and I'm trying to remember what was it called? I'll pull it up. It's called, well, Running in Production. Actually, it's a pretty interesting one by Nick Gentakis. Probably mispronounced that name as well. But Nick's got an interesting thing where he talks to people from all sorts of different technology backgrounds, JavaScript, or Ruby, or or Python, or whatever. And he interviewed this guy named Gareth Thomas from the UK, where they have some uh, Plone, I believe it's Plone app, that is actually running like 10% of, getting like traffic from 10% of the UK schools, or something really interesting in this. But it was more interesting to just think about listening to that episode, looking at Hank's Hank's article, and saying... When do I agree with them? When do I disagree? And he said, look, I disagree with a lot of their choices, actually. I think they're using microservices a bunch. And he was like, thank goodness, there are no mark- no, I'm not doing microservices, basically. And uh, it's really interesting, even if you disagree, to think about the trade-offs that people made. Because while you might make different trade-offs, that might be because you have different goals or different things you're optimizing or different experiences or things that you need over what they need. Right, So I, I just think this idea of exploring how people are running Python in production, how they're solving problems, it, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, I also kind of have to agree that I, li- I like the I- idea of hearing more about the pathway of why people are where they're at, what decisions they made and what things they faced and why those why they made those choices. Because that's um, it's almost more interesting than what in- end product they came up with is what the path they took to it. I mean, like Lord of the Rings would be nothing without the path to the end, right? <laughs> Exactly. 
Oh, yeah, and they get the ring back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so his article, like all good complaints, comes with a suggestion. And he says, at the end, here's a bunch of things that could get discussed more. And so here's an offer. I would love to encourage people doing interesting stuff with Python, running websites or APIs and whatnot, to tell them, about, uh, basically to do talks at PyCon, at meetups, and in blogs. And I think he even offered to help mentor people to get those kind of talks accepted more frequently at conferences. I think that's a great idea. I think it's a great idea. And, you know, maybe we should do that at the PDX Python West meetup. That'd be fun. Yeah. Yeah. We think about that. But yeah, I definitely like this idea because on one hand, if it's kind of always the same story, it's not that interesting. But I do think there's a lot of trade-offs that people are making and I think it's it's pretty fun to see what's working. And it's clearly going on. We're just not talking about it because we're, I mean, you and I have noticed that there's a lot of people in the Python community that are in the website, or the website of the Python community. And it's way more than just the Instagrams and Dropboxes of the world. So yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really cool. And there's a bunch of more stuff that I'm not covering in this article, but I mostly covered it because I love his offer of like, hey, let's get more of this conversation out there. You know, we could do open spaces, we could do Python, PyCon talks, suggestion, you know, uh, proposals, things like that. I guess one final thing to throw out there is Dan Bader and I did have this conversation for Talk Python and the training and Python Bytes and whatnot, as well as for Real Python over on Talk Python episode 215 at the last. PyCon. We recorded that one. So we'll see what happens with this PyCon. But uh, that's a small contribution towards that. And that was a really popular episode. But I definitely want to encourage people to take Hennick up on this, uh, up, yep. up on his offer here and, and get the word out a little bit more. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So, Brian, when I think about testing and whatnot, I feel like you should be really be honest and like testing to tell a true story and you should never like cheat with testing, should you? Yeah, only, yes, you should definitely cheat. <laughs> cheat as much as you can. <laughs> Tell us about this next one. So this comes from, um, I think it's Simon Willison. The article is called How to Cheat at Unit Tests with PyTest and Black. It's got all of my favorite things, testing, PyTest, Black, and, well, I'm not a fan of the unit part, but we'll get there. So the premise is, I'm going to quote this, in pure test-driven development, you write a test first, and you don't start on the implementation until you've watched a test fail. Okay, so the idea is you it's the red-green refactor thing. So you write a failing test, you write code to make it pass, and then you refactor it so you're happy with it. And if I don't do that, I'm cheating? Yeah, apparently. I think I might have cheated accidentally recently. Okay, well, <laughs> yeah. My thoughts of partly on that is uh, there is no such thing as pure test-driven development. Even Kent Beck himself says he didn't make this stuff up. He rediscovered it from previous best practices. So there's no pure in test-driven development. We can't even agree on like whether mocks are good or evil or what a unit is. So whatever works for you, man. So Simon's process really was to cheat on this. And the way, and I think this is just clever pragmatism. His cheat method was to write a PyTest test that calls a function that he's, so he's been working on a function and he thinks it's he's happy with it, and he writes a test that calls it, but then uh, compares the output to you know something he knows won't pass, like just the output equals false or something, and you know that assert's going to fail. So you run the test, and when it fails, you take a look at the output, and if you're happy with the output, you just copy that 
just highlight it, copy and paste it into your test, and now your test should pass. So this feels like cheating, but it's really just uh, taking a manual test and uh, make turning it into an automated regression test. Especially when you're exploring stuff, I think this is a great way to, to build up some of your cut test coverage. The bit about black is that the output might be this big, long blob, something like a, a dictionary or a big list or something, and it might not be formatted well. And that's where he just turns black on his test code and reformat it nicely and make sure it still passes. So I think this is a good time saver. This is interesting. I was working on some tests recently where I had a big chunk of test data that I wanted to compare against something, kind of like he's describing here. And I was really torn. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. You know, I put this at the top of my test file so I could reference it, right? I didn't put it in the test. I put it kind of separate because I'm like, well, this thing is, you know, it basically fills the screen. So I didn't want it to generate a huge test. I want to say compare against that thing, right? And one of the thoughts I had was creating like a, I don't know, a test data module where I could pull those things out, like put it completely into a different file and pull it back. And it sounds like that might also be a nice way to organize things here. But at the same time, it takes what you would see as I'm comparing against this and it hides it away behind, you know, a label of whatever that test module is. What are your thoughts on that? Good, bad, indifferent? I think there's lots of times where that, that if that is a good thing, especially like you said, it's a, Data, a big structure or something that you're comparing against. One common method to do something like that is if there's like, for instance, um, it isn't really what you're asking, but if there's, instead of comparing a whole bunch of different fields or something, to actually compare structures. So to, to create the expected data structure, especially with data classes, it makes it pretty easy. You can just say, this is my expected object, and what I got back was this thing, and compare those two. Um, now, if that thing if all the data is huge and it makes it more clean to work with your test, to stick it in a different file, then go for it. I think that's fine. I mean, there's a method of uh, regression testing, which is kind of the model of, I know it works now and I'm going to modify the code for some reason. So I, instead of trying to come up with thorough tests for everything, just running it with a bunch of logging and stuff and capturing all that. Yeah. Absolutely. And then running it again and make sure all of your output and logging is the same and just comparing against that. It's yucky to work with in the long run, but in the short term, it's a pretty handy, quick thing to do. Yeah. Instead of changing your entire architecture so you can mock out everything and then who knows if you get that right. You're just like, all right, I don't want it to change. (laughs) Let's just start from like, keep it where it is. And if it breaks, then we'll figure out if that's some a change we wanted, right? But just to know that it didn't change is really helpful, and that's a quick, easy way. I like it. Right, and I mean, change detector tests are a smell that you need to be aware of because they're not, you want to be able to, to change your architecture. As long as you can make sure that you're checking for, you don't want the behavior to change sometimes, these are good things. So yep, I agree. Be a pragmatist. For sure, good advice. You know what else is good advice? To work with DigitalOcean. Yeah, definitely. We've been working with DigitalOcean, and we've got a lot of our infrastructure there. And we've been really happy with it. And so one of the things they've got, they've got Kubernetes clusters and all sorts of stuff. So, however, getting started with hosting and running Linux servers or Kubernetes clusters and all that stuff can be a little tricky. And getting into that, going from just building on your own computer to dealing with all of this, some people might not know how to do that. And so that's one of the reasons why DigitalOcean launched their new support center. So the support center makes it easier to find the answers to your questions and to get help that you need right when you need it. 
You can search across product docs or community tutorials and forums, and it's all in one place and you can get all your answers. So I'm sure that's going to help a lot of people really a lot. So you to check this out. You can visit pythonbytes.fm slash do support to see their tutorials. And of course you can use pythonbytes.fm slash digital ocean to get a hundred dollar credit for new users. Their tutorials are pretty awesome. And I just want to tell people like how helpful they have been. So typically, you know, especially when I was getting started, I'm like, man, how come this micro thing won't start? It seems like it should work when I run it, but it won't. It's probably something like the logging file I didn't have permission to write there to or something weird like that. You go search for that, and it's very likely that one of these tutorials is going to come up. But, you know, I just went and put micro into their tutorial thing here, and it comes up how to serve a Flask app with micro and Nginx on Ubuntu 18.04. But then it has a dropdown. Oh, would you like to do that? on 1604 or 1404 or maybe on cent os 7 or or whatever and you can actually change the operating system it's running on and the tutorial will adapt i mean it's ridiculous like how involved it is yeah they've really done a lot to help novice users come up to speed to get things running well yeah i just remember how helpful that stuff was for me so yeah check them out at pythonbytes.fm slash digitalocean get that credit but then use their support center to actually get going you know what i'm glad i don't have to support hundreds of microservices yeah me too <laughs> so i think i found this from a article when he was talking about how people were running in production and whether or not they should have microservices or not and that podcast i told you about i believe those people were using microservices he's like yeah no way no thank you and referred to this article by alexandra noonan who works for a company called segment And this is like a retrospective on their experience. So they had started out with a monolith app. I believe they're doing JavaScript, but it doesn't really matter. Basically, it's like package managers and maintaining versions that talk to APIs. The same story for Python. It could, you know, just switch the code samples or whatever. And they're not really relevant. So there's this article called Goodbye Microservices from 100 Problem Children to One Superstar. And it talks about how Segment was founded during the height of microservices as the the architecture du jour, right? Architecture of the day. And how to sort of decided that was going to solve all their problems. And at first it did, but as they grew and grew and grew, it turned out to be such a huge headache. So they had three software developers and eventually they said, basically their three software developers were spending almost all of their time tracking down broken tests across these hundreds of different variations of microservices and all sorts of stuff. And they were just going nowhere. So it talks about how like all the benefits that microservices should have, like improved modularity, reduced testing burden, better functional composition, isolation, a team autonomy and all that. And how many of those things turned around to actually become like molasses in their world and slowed them down instead of letting them work faster. So Basically, it's a really concrete story about how they took a step back from microservices, how they actually made that step backwards, because with 100 microservices into one app, that's kind of a beast to to pull off, and how it helped them basically get everything under control again. So what's really interesting is basically the places where things broke down. So for example, each microservice was talking to a similar but slightly different API, like customer integrations and stuff. and they had slight different needs. So over time, some of the like the core bits of those 
libraries were slightly different <laughs> across the different APIs. And it became, instead of having things you manage separately for each endpoint, you actually ended up with a hundred different services, all of which you had to manage. And like, if you're going to make a big change, you got to test it against all these variations. Their tests were super slow to run. And there's just a lot of uh, things like also dependencies, you know, as in requirements.txt type dependencies, yeah. they wouldn't upgrade all of them at the same time because they wanted to make sure that they'd had to test it and whatnot. And so if you're going to, you know, be running on say requests, 2.1 over here and 2.2 over there are you sure you know like if there's a problem with that like how do you how do you deal with that now i'm a big fan of the the big monolith type apps and and keeping a little more control over it that way so i'm i'm all behind this sentiment but i do feel like they could have actually done a lot of work on the devops side to make this dramatically better and maybe who knows maybe they would have never uh, switched yeah did somewhere I catch that there was a limited number of developers? I think there was like three or something. At one point, uh, there was three working on all these things. And, you know, microservices are often touted as being really great ways for dev teams to have autonomy. But when your dev team consists of three, you know... You don't really need autonomy. You're already <laughs> exactly, autonomous. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's one team. It doesn't need more than one thing to be autonomous, right? Generally, basically speaking... But, you know, so for, let me just like take a step back and say, for example, like one of the big problems they said is we've got a hundred different services that behave similar, but not the same with slightly different integrations against different API endpoints. And we're feathering out or fanning out requests to those services based on which thing they're kind of integrated with. And the big problem was the dependencies. Well, if they had used something like Docker and Kubernetes and they forced them all to say, we're going to install the same runtime environment with the dependencies pre-configured and the only way you get to release a new version is you get your little thing to work with the latest image that has a uniform set of dependencies across the board. Well, that sounds like that would have completely taken out one of these problems to me, right? I mean, sure, you might have to do a little work to release a new version of some, some thing, but you're keeping it in sync, right? So it seems like there's a couple of things like that that they could have done. There's other issues on the testing side that were caused by these variations. And I feel like there could have been some uniformity stuff done, especially around Docker. That could have made this a lot better, but still, I think there's a lot of interesting lessons there. Yeah, I think I'm looking forward to reading this because that sounds like an interesting story. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. Well done, has nice pictures. Yeah, neat. Oh, I like pictures. Speaking of tests and running them on the web. Yeah, so one of the, the uh, workhorses of web, front-end web testing is often Selenium. And Selenium's awesome, but it can be abused. And also it takes a little bit of knowledge. So there, I think we've covered others. There are some higher level APIs that use Selenium under the hood, but have a different interface. And I'm, I'm a fan of a lot of this sort of stuff because it, if it uh, simplifies your life, go for it. One of the things we're going to cover today is Helium. It's a newer, oh, it's very much newer. It's only a few months old Python library for automating web browsers. It's a project that's built on top of selenium and even though it's fairly new it's already got like over a thousand stars on github that's cool the claim is selenium python 50 percent easier helium is uh, the best python library for web, web automation well of course it's saying that to itself but it does look pretty clean there's some pretty clean uh, drivers to be able to control chrome control your browser kind of navigate some stuff so 
looks good. Yeah, I really like this. I think Michael Herman did a interesting job on this. And the reason that I think this is neat is it it takes you away from working at the structure level. So, for example, just like Selenium, you say, I'm going to open up this website, right? So you say start Chrome, github.com slash login. But instead of doing you know, some kind of CSS selector to find the, the text box, you just say write, if you want to like set something to a text box, you say write this text into, and you just you know give it like a short bit of text, like the label that is right before, immediately before the text box, right? So write something into username and that'll just fill out the username thing then write something into password and that'll type in the password and then click the button they just say click sign in and it just finds the button with the text sign is what it's nice is like what a human sees about the page is how the code interacts with it and you might say well that's unstable right what if somebody changes the text well if you've ever had to work with css selectors and then somebody redesigned the site and your automation stopped working it's not a whole lot better, so uh, you might as well make it easy for humans, as as far as I see it. Yeah, and the I mean the API is like so clean and short. So you've got like think like function calls like click, and with you just <laughs> give it like the tag of thing the the button tag that you're going to click on. So like, man, it's pretty sweet. And to fill in a, a username, for instance, in a f- username field, it just is right. And then you give it two parameters, the, the name of the field that you're going to write into, and then what you're going to write in there. So this is pretty slick. I like it. Yeah, for sure. Too many things get the for humans tag in Python, but this one kind of could get that. Yeah. And so since this is new, I'd, I'll be curious, and there's a lot of web testing going on. I'll be curious to see if uh, where this goes. Keep an eye on it. Yeah, absolutely. And the easiest way, if you want to get a sense of like whether or not this is interesting for you, is just go watch the... There's a little GIF, animated GIF. Just watch that for 10 seconds and, and you'll have a quick idea what's what you can work with there. We've said this before, animated GIFs of how things work are a good thing to get people uh, excited about a project. This project also includes a cheat sheet of some of the common things you might want to do. A single page with a whole bunch of stuff. It's kind of like an FAQ, but uh, but just sort of uh, no questions, just answers. It's yeah. Good. So I'm pretty certain that's a good idea, but sometimes you're not certain. <laughs> yeah, lots of times. So I remember, I don't know where I learned more about this. Either this was in physics or this was in statistics or something. Uh, I, I think it was one of my science classes in college. I've promptly forgotten it. So there's no way I could, could work with uncertainties and measurements really well. Maybe it was even engineering. I'll tell you a quick example, and then I'll, I'll ask you a question. You can't look ahead and don't cheat, because I have the answer in the notes further down. So okay. imagine we're back in, in school, or you're solving a real problem. Jane, she needs to calculate the volume of her pool so she knows how much water it'll take, right? So she measures the length, the width, and the height. Now, of course, you can't measure it ultra-precisely, and also there's probably some variation in there. So she determines the length is 5.56 meters, plus or minus... 2.5%. Like that's her guess on the inaccuracy. And the width, 3 meters, plus or minus 2.6%. And the depth, 3 meters, plus or minus 3.7%. So what is the uncertainty, right? That plus or minus little bit, that uncertainty. What is the uncertainty in the volume, which is the length times the width times the depth? Oh, I correct? can't even remember. Is it <laughs> right? you multiply them together? Or? Yeah. Do you multiply them do you add them? Do you average them? Like, what the heck? <laughs> do you take the max? I don't know. Well, 
there's actually very strict rules about how you do it. So when you multiply things, apparently, I didn't remember this, but I've looked it up, apparently you add the uncertainties when you multiply things. So in this case, it's 2.5 plus 2.6 plus 3.7 is 8.8% uncertainty. That is super tricky. And these kinds of calculations are the kind that ends up with spacecraft burrowing into like a desert or into a moon because they're like, oh, did we get that wrong? Whoops, right? Did we use the wrong units or did we get the wrong uncertainty or, or whatever, right? Yeah. So there's this really cool library called Uncertainty. And it comes with all these different math operations, like it has values, like a float. And it has uh, sine, right? Which is like, you know, sine, cosine, tangent sort of thing. So you can do mathematical computation, but instead of having a regular float, it has an uncertain float, a U float. So you create like X would say like a U float of one is the value and then comma point one is the uncertainty. And then if you were to do math with it and print it out, it'll say like if two times X would be two plus or minus point two. And so it always carries its uncertainty. And then as you take like the sine of it or you multiply or you square it, it will actually integrate and consider all those different uncertainties to give you a final uncertainty in your output. Isn't that awesome? That's very cool. Yeah. yeah. This is useful in lots of fields. Yeah. If you ever have to compute with uncertainty, this seems so glorious. This and Pint, right? If you could put this and Pint together, then it's on. Because Pint yeah. lets you uh, work with different units of measurement and then add and multiply and divide them. And then you throw the uncertainty on top of that, boom, you're golden. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be cool. <laughs> we had uh, worked with once with a measurement value that it was a power level for a cell phone. And the uncertainty ended up being um, plus or minus like the amount of power that the sun produces. <laughs> so it's like we essentially don't know the answer if that's the uncertainty. Right, right, right. It could take a double A battery or it could melt the earth. We're not really sure which. We're, we're not sure which. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not ready for shipment yet. Exactly. Maybe, maybe we got to like get a little more accuracy there. Anyway, this comes from Tim Head, who mentioned it on Talk Python, where we recently did an episode on Binder, which is super interesting, but not yet released. So eventually, okay. we'll talk more about that there as well. Anyway, uncertainty, cool little library. If you got to do any sort of computation with this kind of stuff, yeah, I think it's cool, but I'm not sure about it yet. Yeah, well, yeah. can you ever be? No, but you can be sure about the level at which you can't be sure using it. Yes. <laughs> Awesome. Oh, well, no. I'm pretty sure that uh, I wish my Python prompt was cooler. <laughs> well, I don't. I'm okay with my Python prompt. But are you? I don't know. I mean, come on. But think of all yeah, the options. You could do anything you wanted, <laughs> and I never thought to do that. And I, I mean, I do it with my like a bash prompt and stuff. I've mm -hmm. you know we put our our virtual environment name in there and stuff like that. Get status, get branch, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely. So you can change those things. So why not? This article comes from, I think, Arpit Bayani, and it's a, called Personalize Your Python Prompt. Those three right angle, right, what is it, the right, left, greater than signs that are yep. together when you're doing interactive Python. Apparently, you can muck with those. There's a sys.ps1 variable that if you sign to that, you can change it to whatever you want. And, of course, the author didn't stop there, said... Oh, it can be dynamic also, but you have to have a non-string object to make it dynamic. So it gives a little example to where you can, and the way you do that is you have an object that has a uh, a dunderster method 
if that has dynamic action, that gets called every time. So for every prompt. So this is pretty neat. He has an example of doing some stuff, but I wanted, I didn't have time to do it this morning, but I was working on it. I was trying to uh, get a prompt that would mimic the um, Windows command prompt because (laughs) apparently I want that on my Mac because that would be fun. You just want to confuse people like, what are you doing? This is insane. I mean, I mean, C colon backslash greater than was easy, but I wanted to also put the, uh, the windows, the path in there and flip the direction of the slashes and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. And I didn't, one didn't know that you could just set that very, the sys, you know, import sys, sys.ps1 equals something. And that now is your prompt. But I didn't really think that it could be a dynamic object like that has a stir, dunder stir. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that is neat. You could easily set up something like the Jupyter. You have Jupyter notebooks, you have bracket one, bracket two, bracket three for your various calculations. Like five lines, you got that in your Python prompt if you want it. It doesn't have quite as much value because you can't change the order, but still, it's pretty interesting, I think. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, quite cool. All right, well, that's a, a good little find. A quick and easy to play with. Well, do you have any extra stuff for us? Oh, not really. I'll, I'll go ahead and throw one thing out for you. So I finished my Python for Absolute Beginners course. And so now I'm starting a new course, which is like adding a CMS to a proper data-driven web app. So if you've got a Flask app or Pyramid or Django or something like that, and you want to let other people write part of the site, and the rest is more like Amazon would be with, you know, Here's the categories, here's the products, here's the product page, and here's a review page. Like, you know, very structured. But you want to just let them, like, write freeform stuff. So I'm working on a course that lets you kind of add that to existing sites. So that'll be fun. I'm having a lot of fun working on that. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Is this kind of where the markdown work that you were working on comes in play? Yes, exactly. So I decided this the work that I did for Talk Python training to build out the landing pages and, like, the interesting stuff to basically make a whole section of that site just driven by Markdown and just editors and, and whatnot. I'm going to like take that, extract it, and sort of take it to the next level like with rich Markdown editors and you know database backends and stuff like that. It'll be fun. Nice. Okay, yeah. cool. Shall we close it out with a limerick? Sure. <laughs> I'm not very good at limericks, so I'll give this a shot. But this comes to us from Alexander A., he said this over, he had written it. This is his, he wrote it recently. And this is uh, submitted, apparently there's some kind of limerick contest at Manning where you win free, con- uh, free content like books and whatnot if you submit a winning programming limerick. All right, so here goes, coding environments in three parts. To this day, some prefer BB Edit. VS Code is now getting some credit. Vim and Emacs are fine, so are Atom and Sublime. But it doesn't matter much if you don't let it. But wait, let's not forget IDEs. Using PyCharm sure is a breeze. Komodo, Eclipse, and Idea. Sea Lion is my panacea. And Xcode leaves me at ease. But Jupyter Notebook is also legit. Data scientists must prefer it. In the browser you code, results are then showed. But good luck when you try to use Git. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's good, right? This is great. Yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah. it's so good. Especially that last line. I love it. Definitely makes the whole thing worth it. Yeah. Yes, indeed. So, uh, well done, Alexander. Thanks for sharing that and letting us use it on the show. That's great. All right. Anything else? Uh, Do you got anything you want to share with folks? I guess I I jumped ahead of you and did my limerick. No, no. 
No, it's good. I've got we've got a whole bunch of uh, great feedback from the mo- recent testing code episodes, so uh, it's been good. Yeah, what are some of the ones? Uh, you know, you just did one with Anthony Shaw. Yeah, we plug in. Yeah, so we talked about security. We've talked about uh, Django recently, and um, just uh, the most recent one is uh, talking about the most downloaded PyTest plugins. So Anthony Sotili and I talked about twenty-eight of the top plugins that, was oh, that sounds like the perfect show that's really great yeah really geeked out on a lot of stuff i found some super interesting ones that i'm going to talk about in the next show but uh we'll leave it at that awesome thanks cool all right yeah well thank you as well happy to be here with you like every week bye bye thank you for listening to python bites follow the show on twitter at python bites that's python bites as in b-y-t-e-s and get the full show notes at pythonbytes.fm If you have a news item you want featured, just visit pythonbytes.fm and send it our way. We're always on the lookout for sharing something cool. This is Brian Aachen, and on behalf of myself and Michael Kennedy, thank you for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues.